This is Brian Reisman. Welcome to Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hard rock and heavy metal fans know the name Tony Harnell because of his soulful singing, insightful lyrics, and soaring high notes. He has endeared himself to devout fans while enduring the changing trends of the music business for over 35 years. Tony's fame first came about in the 80s and 90s, fronting the Norwegian band TNT, who created memorable and melodic anthems like 10,000 Lovers in One, Intuition, and Just Like God. Tony has toured intermittently with TNT over the last decade, and he has fronted other melodic hard rock bands during his career, including Westworld and Starbreaker, the latter of whom reunited to release their third studio album, Dysphoria, in 2019. It may be that band's heaviest offering yet. By contrast, the new Love Killers album with Tony is sheer 80s melodic rock bliss. As this podcast is making its way into the internet ether, Tony is getting ready to travel to Australia for a solo tour from March 7th through the 15th. He'll be performing for fans down under for the first time, and possibly catching some waves in his free time. For lucky episode number 13 of Side Jams, Tony spoke with me via Skype from his new home base in Nashville to discuss his love of surfing, both as a participant and spectator, along with another lifelong passion, skateboarding, which long after his professional teen years he has continued doing for fun. He also told me about his recent certification as a health coach. All in all, we had a fun chat about wild waves, wipeouts, and the art of riding water and concrete. So let's roll into it. Tony, it's great to chat with you again. Welcome to Side Jams. Thank you, Brian. How have you been? I've been good. And you're, you're down in Nashville now. I am in Nashville, yeah. I, a place I never could never dreamed that I would be. <laughs> so here I am, yeah. But it's great. How many years were you in New York? Gosh, uh, I moved there from San Diego at about... 17. So uh, I won't say how many, but let's just say most of my adult life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw you. I have a memory from way before the last time I saw you. I remember a bunch of us going to the the screening for the Rockstar movie. Oh, yes, right. You know, and watching the reaction, it was like you, me, and this JJ French, a bunch of people. Basically, it was like the club from the the old days was back together. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously we're doing a lot of acoustic shows and other things too in the city, and uh, Nashville is a whole new adventure. Although, not mm. uh, not that close to the beach, because I know we were going to talk about your yeah. love of surfing. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that sort of uh, you know. Uh, honestly, the minute I got to New York, I, I, I did not move there by choice. Um, my mother was an opera singer, and she moved to New York a, about two years, I think, maybe a, a year or two before I did, and yeah. so. I stayed back in California to presumably live out my life. I, I wasn't really sure that I was going to be ever going to New York. And I finished high school early and I got heavily into, I was a professional skateboarder when I was uh, 14 and 15. Wow. And, and I was always a surfer from the time I was really young. I was body surfing and uh, we lived by the beach a few times, um, moved around a lot, but that was always like my first love. And I got really heavily into surfing, um, probably around the same age I was skateboarding a lot. And then it just sort of became my number one passion. And I was going every day um, for a couple of years, uh, last year of high school and my last year that I spent in California. And my grandparents were like, yeah, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're 16, you're out of high school, you're surfing every day, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to be a pro surfer. And they were like, no, you're not. <laughs> so so uh, they're like, well, you have two choices. You either go to, uh, go to college here in San Diego and, uh, and we'll take care of it, or you got to go to New York. And for some reason, 
And I forgot about that. I forgot they even gave me that option because huh. now when my grandfather, who's 92, when he tells me this, I'm like, I don't remember that option. I would have totally taken that option. So I'm not sure if he if he's getting it wrong or I am. But either way, I ended up in New York and I did uh, drive my car out or my dad did and with my surfboard in it. And I tried to keep that going for a while. I went to Long Island and I found where all the waves were and got all the numbers for the surf, the surf line numbers that you call to find out where the waves are happening on any given day. And I, I tried, but you know, it wasn't that close to where we were in Queens, uh, which is where I first moved. And right. um, it just kind of petered out after a while. I picked it up again later when I moved to Long Island for, for probably two years and got pretty good again. Um, but it might, you know, by that time I was in my late twenties and early thirties and my, my serious, you know, my, my days of having it, you know, being competitive were over. So. Right. Right. But it's more for fun after that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I still love it. And I, so, you know, when I moved there, my initial thing was, I said to my mom, I'm here. I hate it. I'm going to get back to California as soon as humanly possible. And, you know, Almost 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yeah. That's funny. And they actually televise a lot of competitions, surfing competitions? Um, they do, but, you know, with social media and with uh, with the internet now, uh, I, I follow all the major surfing Facebook pages and so forth and Instagram. So, like, right now there's a big uh, competition in Portugal at a place called Nazar or Nazari. I'm not sure how they say it. And um, I'm probably saying it wrong both ways, but it's one of the it's one of the biggest waves in the world, right? And and maybe the biggest wave in the world um, outside of Jaws in Hawaii. Okay. They're having a huge competition right now. In fact, today somebody got hurt really bad. I'm not sure how they're doing. They're in the hospital. So I yeah I get these alerts. You know, like World. I can't remember the name of the page, but it's like uh, it, it just comes up and says you know it just went live with some competition. And I end up getting. I, I go right on. I watch it live from wherever it is in the world, and I get sucked in and start watching it. And usually, it's late at night here for me because it, it might be in uh, Europe or you know someplace far away. So, but yeah, I, I follow it loosely. I kind of I kind of have an idea of who's the world, the current world champion, and things like that. How much does the sport change since you started? Oh wow! I mean, first of all, when I was surfing, you know, the top pros were were staying on the wave for the most part. There are a couple little, you know, little things they would do where they'd sort of float on top and come back. But I mean, now they're popping out like, um, like skateboarders and, and snowboarders. Now, now they've, they've figured out how to, it's been years now since they started doing this, but they're only getting better and better at it. Um, basically riding a wave with these really fast little, uh, boards that are, that are able to, um, you know, and these guys uh, are getting are getting huge amounts of air, and they're just popping over the lip, and and you know, five feet or more above the lip, and the lip is the top of the wave for those who don't know, and and they're you know turning in the air, doing flips and spins and all sorts of stuff, and landing back on the wave, and they keep going, which is just crazy. So it, it's developed into um, quite an incredible sport and it's always been a very athletic sport a very difficult sport because it involves a lot of upper body strength with pe which people don't realize because of all the paddling that you do um, most of what you do when you surf is paddling right um, 
and and there's for a most for the most part in most places in the world where there aren't a lot of waves coming through on any given day you're paddling much more than you're on your feet on the board so well, that's interesting yeah I, I was sort of doing a little research into like surfing 101 and it's interesting how you really I mean before you get out there you've got to stretch you got to get a lay of the land really the lay of the waves I guess you have to see what it looks like before you get out there Yep. You have to really wait almost an hour after you eat to get out there to avoid getting cramps. Yeah. What, what kind of rituals have you done in the past and what do you do again well, as getting ready? Well, um, probably all that stuff. You know, I mean, when I was I was I was surfing before school uh, my last couple of years. Well, especially the last because I had a car uh, when I was 16. So, you know, I'd get up and probably four or five in the morning and go to the beach and surf for an hour or so. Hit, hit class. Uh, with the wet oh, hair wow. and the board locked in the back, you know, just take we, we you know California. Well, everywhere really, even in Long Island, you you you, you put your wetsuit on and take it off uh, in the parking lot. You know, uh, you put a towel around your waist and you you know peel it off and throw it in the back of the car. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, <clears throat> the eating thing for sure because the waves are always in most places in the world they're the best early in the morning because there's no wind. So uh, the lower the wind, the better the waves. And there are cycles throughout the day where the waves are the best because of the wind and the tides. So the combination of the two is is what you look for. So early in the morning and late in the afternoon, early evening before the sun goes down, things get calm again. So that's what you look for there. So I'd go before and after school if the waves were good and there was a good swell. And and all all the things you just said. You know, you go down, uh, you stand uh, on the shoreline for a while and just kind of look out and see where they look like they're, you know, break. Now, most surf spots that are popular, because of the way the bottom is shaped, when the waves are good, they tend to break generally around the same area, uh, general vicinity in the water. So if there's mm-hmm. a reef or some kind of interesting bottom, which, which is what creates the shape of the waves is how the bottom is shaped, you know, that'll determine where you are going to paddle out and focus your your attention when you're in the water. I mean, it's also not necessarily a good idea to be around too many other surfers in the same yeah. area, right? Yeah, but it happens. And and in some areas when like in certain spots in California, Florida and uh and even Long Island on a good day when it's warm and you know, it's it gets real crowded and it gets dangerous as well. And it can even get violent because people get angry at each other and they start to <laughs> they can cry. I mean, there, there's all also that locals, you know, locals only thing, which started oh, in the seventies yeah. or probably in the sixties even actually. And Hawaii's brutal for that. You know, I don't know if it still is probably still is. Um, if you're not a local or they don't know you, some of the spots that are like a little bit, maybe secret or whatever, um, you have to get like, you have to know people to be even be allowed to paddle out there. It's so unusual. It's like it's it's weird to think it's competitive, even if you're just riding waves for fun. Yeah, yeah, because it's like they don't want a lot of guys. If they're if they're local guys that grew up in that around that beach, they don't want a lot of other guys in the water because that means they don't catch as many waves that day. Okay. So yeah, so it's a little bit of a kind of hey, this is our turf and we want to catch the most waves. If you watch that documentary on Dogtown and the Z Boys, right. Um, there's a whole segment in the beginning about all this that I'm talking about with Venice Beach and the local scene. And they used to beat the crap out of people and 
screw their car up when they were in the out wow. in the water. They'd come out and like trash their car or steal steal stuff. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Or beat them up. <laughs> yeah, I thought this surfing these seemed like such a peaceful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it should be, and I think for the most part it actually is. But there's definitely this aggro. They call it like this aggro thing where it can get pretty brutal. You were talking earlier about like the biggest waves. I mean, the place you were talking about actually has the largest waves. It's one of the yeah. They're they're about. Uh, I mean, there are three three really famous spots, maybe three or four that have huge waves. Um, Jaws right. and Jaws off Maui, uh, off the coast of Maui. Um, that's the first one that everybody kind of really learned how to ride these gigantic waves. And when I say gigantic, I mean upwards of 80 to 100 foot faces, which is crazy, right? So, wow. uh, and there's a whole sort of technical thing that goes with that because the wave is so big, it moves real fast. So they have to have certain kinds of equipment. And then there's the toe end surfing, which is where they have the jet skis in the water and they actually uh, don't need as big a board because they can get pulled into it because the wave moves so fast. So they have longer boards if they're going to paddle into these huge waves because the longer boards paddle faster. But they don't actually need a long board to ride the wave itself because once they're on the wave, then it's a smaller board is, is fine. So there's Maui. There's Jaws in Maui. There's Mavericks in Northern California, okay. um, which is up near um, San Francisco. And then there's... Uh, uh, this place, Nazar, Nazar or Nazare or whatever it's called, it's N-A-Z-A-R-E. It's in right. Portugal, and that's where they are right now. And they all have just humongous. The one in, in Portugal, I I hear is, uh, it's the mo- one of the mo- I think it's the most dangerous one because of where it breaks and how it breaks, and okay, uh, it's pretty crazy. You can see the footage. I mean, the guy, the guy, the last guy to break the world record for the biggest wave ridden, which they do every year. I think that was it maybe even a couple years in a row. I think some guy rode like an 80-foot wave or something, or 100-foot wave. The only so far you can go because there's only so high the waves can go unless you have a tsunami. You know, honestly, these waves are probably bigger than what a tsunami... A, a tsunami is an interesting thing because it's really more of a wall of water hmm. than it is a big spiked wave. Because what happens with, with these waves is they roll along, the swell comes in from way out in the water, and depending on what the bottom is like, or as the waves, as the swell is approaching the shore, the bottom of the ocean determines whether the wave, whether the swell jacks up into a big wave or just kind of gently washes in. And also how the storms converge out in deep water, if they come together and create more power. There's so many different, I mean, it's a full-on thing that these guys study. Now, one of the things that's progressed compared, you ask me, how has it progressed? Well, one of the biggest waves is that it's moved forward is because of the internet uh, and all the satellite and, and all the you know crazy technology they have, they can predict very, very accurately where where and when, you know, the the best waves are going to break. So these top pros and the magazines and the photographers and all these teams, um, they actually are following this all the time. And the ones that have money and they're doing this basically full time for a living, which there are quite a few that do, they just um, they have it all logged in and they they all talk to each other and they're like, okay, so the next you know next thing's going to happen, you know, maybe in Mexico, and then the next one's like you know somewhere in Europe, and then. Um, Hawaii or Portugal, mm. 
and they're just constantly chasing or California or East Coast and they're just constantly moving around following this um, the satellite um, imagery and what's happening with storms and they, they can predict it perfectly based on all these different factors. Yeah. So now what kind of surfboard do you prefer and is there a certain gear that you like or a wetsuit, et cetera? Like I said, it's been a while so um, since I was super serious, but I mean, I, I still look at boards and I'm, I'm sort of interested. I, I would love to try some of these new boards, but when I was surfing, originally in the 70s, I, I rode a twin fin, and it was back then they were, the boards were relatively thick and buoyant compared to what they became later. In the 90s, I was riding more uh, of, a, of a thruster, so a twin fin is two fins, Right, and a thruster is um, three fins and sometimes four fins, I believe, and and I can't remember that might even have a different name, but uh, so the the thruster is usually one fin in the middle and the back and two on the sides and the back, and the the top of it it has a certain shape as well. Are they fiberglass? Yeah, yeah, fiberglass. They're doing different things, I think, with them now. They're they probably, uh, in fact, I know they are experimenting and and are using different properties now, but. Depending on what, on what kind of surfer you are, there's a board for it. So if you're like a top pro that's, you know, doing all the latest tricks and all that stuff, you're going to have a high-performance board that's going to turn fast and be stable and light at the same time. And um, it's a whole thing. And, of course, um, not to sidetrack from your question, but they also have these, this new technology now where they're, they're building parks that have man-made waves that are perfect. So, um, and they've gotten way better. Mm. It's not, it's not like those stupid things you see on a, on a cruise ship. I mean, these are, these are big spaces that they, that they buy land and they build basically, um, a, a piece of, a piece of ocean they build and they have these, um, different, different ones use different technology. So there's, there's a couple famous ones in Florida. I mean, they're popping up everywhere, but there's one really good one in, um, California called the Surf Ranch, which is owned by Kelly Slater, who's like one more world champions than anybody. Everybody kind of knows who he is. Yeah, um, and and it's amazing if you watch the footage from it. It's just this perfect wave, and so this is going to change the sport a lot because these guys can now go train every single day, and it doesn't matter if there's a swell in the ocean it, or if they're if the waves are good because they're good every day at this place. You know. Uh, yeah. 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 That's how they're going to introduce this sport into the Olympics, because I believe this next coming Olympics is going to be the first year that they have surfing. Yeah, it's in Tokyo 2020. I was going to bring that up. I'm amazed that it hadn't been included before, but I never thought about it until I was going to do this interview, <laughs> and I looked it up. Yeah, and I think I believe they're building a special uh, wave pool for, for the competition so that they can not have to worry about the weather and what the waves are going to be like from day to day. So... Um, I mean, more controlled circumstances. Though. Totally. So then it's all about the performance um, rather than um, worried about the, you know, which I love the factor, and most surfers do too, of the unpredictability of the ocean and the nature. That's really what surfing is all about. It's about yeah. unpredictability, and it's about your ability as a surfer to read what the ocean is doing. And there's this purity too, the surfer against, you know, nature. Uh, or not against, but, you know, trying to merge with it. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of um, depending on the size of the wave and, and, and what the ocean is doing. It's a very sort of, um, it's a spiritual sport rather than um, 
what it becomes in a in a wave in a man-made wave pool it becomes much more of a um a different kind of sport altogether so it, it, it kind of loses some of that spirituality that you get with a guy in the water you know because there were many mornings when i was the only person out in the ocean right and i was 16 years old it's probably not the safest thing in the world you know but yeah i knew what i was doing but still doesn't mean you know experts die surfing all the time so i mean obviously there are certain aspects of surfing that probably haven't changed at all since you were a kid yeah are there common mistakes that you find young surfers making when you, know, you, when you notice it when you watch them i haven't been around it to that degree that you're talking about but I'm sure it's mostly the same. I mean, there's there's definitely a learning curve. A lot of these really good young surfers now, from what I'm observing, are oftentimes the younger brother of some great surfer, you know, or, oh, right, or right. son or daughter. And there's a lot of good female surfers now, um, which that's a huge change in the sport as well. So, uh, and, and they're, you know, to the point where they're, I'm not sure if they're as good as a lot of the men, but they're they're real close really close yeah obviously there are some probably some surf conditions out there that are not safe when you see people going out when it's before a major storm is that really not that's i assume that's not really a good idea no actually if if you know where to go and the conditions haven't you know are are right surfing as a storm is approaching way out in the ocean so for example one of the things that surfers on the east coast look for is hurricanes so during her during hurricane season they're all like figuring out, you know, they're watching it really closely. And as it gets closer or, you know, and when I say closer, I mean still hundreds or even a thousand miles, but usually hundreds of miles away, the waves can be incredible uh, because the the winds will be still be calm, but you'll, you'll have that power coming from way out in the ocean. So the waves start picking up and the conditions can be the best conditions that you'll get on the East coast. Um, that's from all the way at the, from, from Maine down to Florida, you know, you'll get incredible conditions, but there are times, yeah, there, you know, the things, the the mistakes that young or beginning surfers make are going to be similar mistakes to what, um, swimmers might make in the ocean. The ocean is, uh, is not a pool. You know, if you don't understand rip currents and, and all these, these kinds of things uh, you can get yourself in trouble. I had, I saved a couple of people, in my day, you know, that got caught in the wrong spot. When you, when, oh, wow. when you're in the water a lot, you kind of learn where to, what the water looks like, uh, and how it, it's behaving. And you can literally be 10 feet away from a bad current and be fine. And you, you go sideways and you can tell, you can see how the surface of the water looks. You can tell where it actually is. And I had a couple of times where Somebody I was swimming in the water with sort of went over to the side too much, even though I said, don't go over there. And <laughs> they went over there. And I had, I had to risk my life, too, to go over there and, like, pull them in. What was the most exhilarating surfing experience you had? And what's the most dramatic wipeout that you ever had? I had a lot of bad wipeouts. But um, the most exhilarating that I can remember, there were a couple of them. Um, one was I went to – I used to go meet some buddies at Huntington Beach – in Cal, which is probably the most famous surf spot in California. It was a huge day. It was so big, they had closed the pier. So the waves were actually breaking over the top of the pier and sort of the water was splashing on the surface where you walk. So they had that closed. That's how big the waves were. I was at that point, I was good. I, I was good enough that when I saw how big they were that day, I was nervous, but I wasn't, I wasn't afraid to paddle out. I, I had surfed enough and constantly and consistently enough where I was I was okay with it but my buddies weren't quite as uh, 
confident. So um, we all paddled out, but I was the only one that made it out to the, you know, to where the waves were breaking safely through the all the white water and the uh, right. the closer waves. And um, and I took off. Uh, I, I think I only took off on one wave that day, but it was really big and really fun. <laughs> and my buddies were watching from the shore, and I just remember very well at the end of, uh, when I got to the bottom of it, it, the wave was huge. So it just sort of closed out in front of me and I, I wiped out, but that's how the waves were breaking that day. And it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of, a lot of good experiences, uh, surfing though, both and also in long Island too. And how does it make you feel emotionally when you're doing it? It's just like, like I said, it's a very spiritual sport. So if it's the right conditions and the right day and the, and you know, the, it helps if the weather's even nice. Um, even if you're wearing a wetsuit, if the sun's out, you know, the wind is maybe not too strong and, and it's blowing the right direction. And it, it just sort of all comes together and you feel very connected to nature. You know, I, I, there was such yeah. a long period of time where there was no place I'd rather be than in the ocean. I'm sure that's, that's just always going to be with me whether I'm near it or not. I always have a craving to be, to be near it. Uh, in fact, talking about it right now, I want, almost want to get in my car and drive to the ocean tomorrow. You know, <laughs> uh, how, how long of a drive is it to the ocean from where you are? Good question. I think I think I'm going to have to look. It's pr- I'm going to guess it's going to be probably uh, probably Georgia or something. Is probably going to be maybe the closest yeah. place. A few hours then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any place that you'd like to surf? That I would like to that and haven't. Yeah. Well, I'm about to go to Australia for the first time in my life on March second. And I'm That's right. extremely excited because I've been wanting to go since I was a kid in California and was surfing. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have time to surf, but the, the promoter knows that I want to try to get to the beach and, and at least try to surf one afternoon or morning or whatever. So we'll see. How, how long are you going to be there for? I'm there from the 2nd to the 15th. So I'm oh, nice. two of those days, or 16th actually. So two of those are obviously travel days, but... Uh, well, actually, I'm not there from the second. What am I saying? This is the funny thing. So you leave here on the second, and you actually get there on the fourth because of the time difference and the length of the flight. I was wow. just looking at the flight time, and it's about 25. Depending on which, which flight they booked me on, it's anywhere from 25 to, to 30 hours the whole trip to get there. Jesus. Yeah. Especially from here, it's longer because you have to go Nashville, L.A., and then they have direct flights from L.A. over there. Another thing I meant, you mentioned that you're uh, like a health coach, fitness. Yeah, I've never coach, certified fitness coach. Or uh, is it? It's a, no, uh, I I wouldn't mind being that, but no, it's just general health. So, um, yeah, you know, in 2009, I lost my mom to breast cancer, and I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and I had my thyroid removed along with yeah. some along with mm-hmm. some lymph nodes. So it's been 10 years, almost 11 cancer free. Excellent. And then in 2011, I lost my the TNT's longtime keyboard player, at, and he was only 44. He died of cancer. And yeah, my, right. my grandmother died the same that year as well. And at that point, it was like, this is crazy. And, of course, all the people I you know kind of knew a little bit or friends of friends, and, family, and I was like, what is going on? I knew this wasn't right because there were just certain things that just were not happening years ago. So I just right. kind of wanted to like know. I've always been into. I was always into eating really well and um, started eating pretty much all organic 
like in the late 80s or early early 90s. So I just had a, a, an interest in it anyway. And then I just like got determined to figure out, okay, what is going on? So I, it was a year-long course, pretty not, not cheap. And I did it with a lot of integrity. A lot of integrity is a good word. Yeah, a lot of uh, interest and intention. And I really did it and really studied. And I got my certification. And I don't really know what my intention was. I think it was just to learn, maybe write a book, maybe do some seminars or something. I, I, I did coach a few people one-on-one, but... Okay. Um, but I learned quickly that most people really don't don't want to change what they're doing. So I, <laughs> yeah, unless, unless they have to, that's the human way. Yeah. So I didn't get a lot of satisfaction out of doing it because I, I it was it's just very hard to to do that one on one. I did get offered. Yeah. Uh, I had a really good friend in New York who is um, a world renowned um, natural physician doctor he's an md but he switched over to natural medicine and he wanted me to actually work in his office but at the time my tour schedule wouldn't allow it or i would have actually been interested in in experiencing that for a little while just to see what it was like so how have your eating habits changed since you you got that certification um i actually tried during that year when i was studying you learn and it's probably more now the same school uh, I learned over a hundred science-backed diets. Wow! I tried different ones that I thought were interesting, and I ended up back to the one that I was on sort of before I started the whole thing because that's the one that made me feel the best, and both my doctors were backing it, so that's what I sort of gravitated back to. Recently, I've been experimenting with um, vegan and also just vegetarianism, so. Okay. kind of around the, that and just kind of look taking a look at that again based on a lot of different things and just trying to find the best way to do it. So I'm just I'm always kind of looking at, you know, what's the optimum a number one what makes me feel the best and gives me the most energy. And it's pretty easy to figure out if if you if you're sleeping well and you have a lot of energy during the day, you probably found the right diet. You know, it's it's just so simple. As as opposed to a quickie diet to lose weight fast. Yeah, because the the funny thing about the word diet is when I think of what what diet am I I think about just a lifestyle. This is not I'm not doing this for any other reason than for health. So this is how I eat. I think if more people took that on, even just the simplest thing of um the the idea of eighty twenty, um, which is just, you know, eighty percent really healthy and but most people wouldn't know it. Right. Most people wouldn't even wouldn't know what that 80% was and if they didn't have a coach or um, they weren't privy to it. And there are so many opinions out there, which is where listening to your body comes into play because we are all different. And, you know, slight adjustments to if somebody wants to be vegan for, um, you know, for, for ethical reasons or, they, or spiritual or whatever, um, some, there's so many ways to be vegan. Um, and so many ways to be other types of things. And so you just have to right. kind of figure out what foods do you respond well to. And it's kind of a whole interesting, deep thing, you know. So, you know, I wanted to get back to, you mean, you were a professional state skateboarder as a kid. So how long did that last for? And what, what kind of competitions were you well, doing? Well, I was in, actually, because of the timing of doing it, I was lucky enough to be in the very, very first professional vertical pool competition. At, which really? was held at Spring Valley Skate Park in San Diego in 1978. I think it was 78. Wow. 
and it was all the top pros were there and it was a really big deal all the magazines well you know there there were quite a few at the time actually but there were the big magazines like skateboarder was always the biggest and and there was yeah. trans world and there were a few other skateboard magazines um this is before thrasher yep. several years before so i was in that and it was really funny i did okay i i was a little nervous i really didn't like competing i loved the sport but i, I didn't love competing uh, mm. i'm still like that today i really don't love competition uh, but I competed, and then they had this other part of the skate park where they had this um, plexiglass full pipe. Half of it was a full pipe, and half of it was a half pipe. And right. I was over there skating with all the other pros that, w- that were done for the day. And I tried a trick that I had never tried before, and it, I didn't land it right. And I ended up uh, falling 50, from, from 15 feet in the air straight on, straight on my head, cracked my helmet, got a concussion, ended up in the hospital. So that was my one and only competition. But what I did is I remained a, quote, pro, but I did it, I chose to do it in a different way. So I actually um, started to, there were two skate parks, and I sort of became like, you know, like the resident pro, like golfers do at golf courses where they're, you know, where I skated and the kids that were there, I just kind of would skate around and kind of like coach them a little bit and show them stuff, you know. So I was kind of doing that for the remainder of my time in California and had a couple of companies that were giving me free stuff. You were doing some skateboarding when you were living in New York too, just for fun. Just recently. Yeah, I was actually had a board up until um, it kind of it kind of got a little bit beat up um, from the streets of New York. But, um, but I was skating quite a bit from like, say, 2012 through through probably a couple of years ago. It's interesting because back as a kid, we never would have imagined someone like that someone, you know, Approaching middle age would be like doing that, and I've got people still doing it. Oh. I mean, I don't know what Tony. I wonder what Tony Hawk's doing lately. They're know? all skating. I mean, they're but he's not even that old compared to. I mean, Tony. So I know all the Z Boy guys like Tony Alva. Tony's got to be in his early sixties. I think he's. I think he's sixty-one or two. He skates every day. Same, same. You know, may, probably not as crazy as what he was doing before, but he still, he still skates yeah. pools, and I think he's still. You know, and most of these guys that I was skating with, quite a few of them that are still alive are skating. And they're doing stuff that's pretty dangerous, you know. But because they never really stopped, their reflexes and their reactions are still in tune. And that's the thing about skating vertical and skating half pipes and pools is it really takes a lot to get that back again, the balance. There's a whole thing to it. But it's that's another thing I regret, you know. I wish I would have kept that up because it's really, really healthy. It's one of those super healthy things to do. Except when you fall on your head and and die and get a concussion, and then uh, and then you wake up and go, "Mom, I want to be a rock star." Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> and she's like, "No." Yeah. That was just. That was just. <laughs> I mean, I was very into music in California, but that that was that transformation was really just forced uh, forced upon me by moving to New York. And so, my the things I loved which, you know, number one was surfing and then skateboarding, and then I was into photography and music. Music was definitely always at the top but yeah. um, with everything else, but it, be, it, be, it started becoming more and more important to me when I was still in California, still surfing. It was a big part of my life, but when I got to New York, it was sort of, okay, well, this is, this is what I guess I can do. It just kind of, it was very organic how that happened. That's a whole different story that we don't have to get into, but... Um, it was very, very organic and unplanned how I, uh, how music became the prominent thing. Um, only about six months out, if that, after I moved to um, New York. 
Well, I mean, isn't that the thing, though? Like, I mean, I went to film school and you had all these people who wanted to make movies. And it's fascinating how there are people that are dying to do something that can never get a break. And then someone just falls into it. Yeah. And it a lot of it is natural talent. A lot of it is serendipitous. A lot of it is just having the right connection. I mean, that's the thing about art. It's a very random thing. I mean, there's a lot of people who do make it out of sheer willpower. But it seems like there's usually a – I always say you have to have money and resources a lot of times mm. on top of the talent. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't matter, but... There was an element um, that is hard to explain that I carried with me um, when when I did anything, whether it was surfing, skateboarding, or, or music. And, right. uh, and when, I, when I latched on to music, there was, there was just a, there was an energy in me that I swear was really the, the catalyst behind success. And it was just this undying rabid love that I had for it. Um, deep, deep passion and commitment to it. I mean, I lived it and breathed it. I couldn't get enough of it. The smells, the, you know, I loved going to the music stores just because I smelled good to me. You know, it's like, yeah, there's just, when you get to that level of being so into something and loving it so much, and there's a natural thing that I think just pushes you along and if you happen to be lucky enough to have some talent, the combination is, to me, is is unstoppable. It's so hard to. I wish I had it still. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I didn't lose that. You know, um, it's 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 hard to describe. There was a time from seventeen to twenty one, which yeah. I got signed at twenty one, where people could tell me anything. They could be really negative and say, it's so hard. You're never going to make it. You're too this. You're too that. Whatever. It, I didn't even hear them. You know, it, they could have said anything to me. And I, I just, I couldn't, literally, I could not hear them. And it's weird how it went from that to like probably not even three years or, well, five years later, once the, start, the success started coming, that all those words penetrated like they didn't do when I was you know younger it, it's important to have that when you're young because even later on when you yeah, everyone gets older and they have some doubts yeah. but it's it was good to have that at the age that you did because yeah. it kept you going yeah and you're still doing it yeah yeah I mean I'm, I'm still doing this after all these years and yeah you know even with the rough times you, just, you have to love it yeah that's just the one thing that keeps you going. Otherwise, you know, I mean, you know, we could have got kind of bankers or something and made a lot more money, but there's no fun in that. Yeah. I don't think yeah. <laughs> some bankers do find a lot of fun in it, but not me, not you. You know, there's always that part of you that goes, you know, I could have like, you know, the, the problem is, yeah, there's a part of me that sort of goes, you know, I had success at such a young age that I had plenty of time in my mid twenties or, or even early thirties to reassess everything and maybe go back to school or you right. know, pursue some other thing. And I, I just, you know, I forged ahead, you know, I, I, I loved it so much. And I, I, that it was already established that this is what I, this is kind of my identity. It's not what I do. It's who I am. And I think a lot of people that, that have are in the arts relate to that on some level or That's really right. anything that they love. Maybe there's an accountant that really loves, you know, oh, there probably others. is. Yeah. Well, good luck with the Australian tour. Well, thank you. And thank you, thank you for, for chatting. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been great to catch up, and uh, I look forward to seeing you showing up in the news as uh, Man Outruns Shark on Surfboard. Uh, <laughs> in, in... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's hope that's the headline. That would be, uh, that's the preferable <laughs> one to the uh, alternative, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you, Brian. 
That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature singer Militia Vox from Judas Priestess. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law, and I licensed them through AudioSocket. As always, thank you very much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.